Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is Swami, and this week our conference featured some infectious disease workshops on antibiotics as well as skin and soft tissue infections. We also had two excellent grand round talks on disaster management. Let's start with the ID workshops. There were a couple of really big take-home points here. Number one, know your local antibiogram. Lots of recommendations from different societies, handbooks, and applications on your smartphone. But your best resource is your hospital's antibiogram, showing local resistance. This is the best way to tailor your management to your patient. If you've got clinical pharmacists, use them. They can be incredibly helpful. And number two, search for recent old cultures from your patients and tailor the antibiotics appropriately. This is essential in patients with recent hospitalizations. This is just like EKGs. Patient comes in with chest pain and you're handed an EKG. First question should be, is there an old EKG for comparison? Same thing in infection. Patient presents with a recurrent UTI. Order antibiotics based on that last culture if it's recent. Now getting down to the specific workshops, we covered firstly pneumonia. One of the first core messages here is that there's different types of pneumonia and this is going to help to guide our treatment. So community acquired pneumonia or CAP, basically anyone from the community getting pneumonia. The main options are a fluoroquinolone, a macrolide like azithromycin, and most of these patients can be discharged home. If they need to be admitted for whatever reason, our typical go-to is ceftriaxone plus azithromycin or a fluoroquinolone. Remember that you can put people on POA antibiotics and admit them if they're at a higher risk for bad outcomes. Absorption of many antibiotics through the PO route is just fine. The other main categories of pneumonia are hospital-associated pneumonia, which is a diagnosis that's made greater than 48 hours after admission, and vent-associated pneumonia, where the diagnosis is made 48 to 72 hours after endotracheal intubation. Now, we don't typically deal with HAP and VAP, but the recs for antibiotics are similar to HCAP, which we do see quite a bit. HCAP is healthcare-associated pneumonia. This is a diagnosis of pneumonia that's made within 48 hours after admission with any of the following risk factors. One, hospitalization in an acute care hospital for more than 48 hours within 90 days of your diagnosis today. Number two, they resided in a nursing home or long-term care facility. Number three, they received recent IV antibiotic therapy, chemotherapy, or wound care within the 30 days preceding the current diagnosis. And finally, if they attended a hospital or hemodialysis clinic. Your typical go-tos here are a fourth-generation cephalosporin or an advanced penicillin like piperacillin tazobactam or imipenem. Acetrinum can be used in patients with a penicillin allergy if that allergy is confirmed and severe. You also should add a macrolide like azithromycin or a fluoroquinolone to cover the atypicals. And then typically we're also going to add vancomycin or linezolid for MRSA coverage. There's some recent literature on patients with HCAP that are very well appearing showing that perhaps broad coverage with triple antibiotics isn't so necessary. Academic Life and Emergency Medicine did a nice review on this topic back in November 2013, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But basically, the post questions the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics in these patients and kind of encourages us to be a little bit more judicious. 
Let's move on to our skin and soft tissue workshops. I got four big take-home messages here. Number one, antibiotics aren't required for most simple abscesses. IND, and if no overlying cellulitis, no antibiotics. Not all abscesses need packing. If they're small and on the extremities, it's reasonable to leave them unpacked, especially in healthy patients. Number three, not all patients need MRSA coverage for cellulitis. Most cellulitis without abscess is strep. If they're well-appearing without specific risk factors, cover them with a first-generation cephalosporin like cephalexin, and that's going to be just fine. And then number four, neck fash is bad, and it can be hard to pick up. The patients who come in really toxic, they've got crepitus, anybody can pick up that one. There's a scoring system called the L-R-I-N-E-C, which maybe is pronounced Lurinic. Not really sure on that one. This scoring system is one that's in place to help. But in general, if the patient looks toxic from a cellulitis, you should suspect it. If they've got more pain than you would think with a simple cellulitis, again, suspect neck fash. A lot of these topics were covered on our EM Lyceum blog back in March of 2014. And we'll drop the link to that in the show notes as well. The last part of our conference was a grand rounds delivered by Gentry Wilkerson, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine down at the University of Maryland. Gentry gave two talks on disaster management. He started out with a general talk on disasters and how we should prepare for them. There was a lot of great information here, but one of the key pieces up front is that you really should know your department's disaster plan, where to find the resources, and how to initiate the process when a disaster strikes. These disasters can strike any time of day, so we shouldn't rely on the presence of an administrator to do this process. Gentry went from here into the start triage system. This is a critical process in any disaster for any ED. It gives us a system to prioritize patients as they come in. START stands for Simple Triage and Rapid Treatment. It's basically a four-tiered system, and it's color-coded to make things easier when you're actually in a disaster. We'll put a flowchart for this up in the show notes. The four categories are red, which equals an immediate or critical patient, yellow, which means you can do delayed treatment because the patient's stable, green, which means they're a minimal injury or the walking wounded, and then finally black, which is basically that they're dead. Patients in the black get really minimal interventions done because there's too much going on to spend a lot of time on one patient who's not only dead but has a minimal chance of coming back. The start triage system takes the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, and turns those into the RPM, respiratory, perfusion, and mental status, and that's how they categorize patients. For the respiratory assessment, we're simply going to start with whether they're breathing or not. If they're not breathing, open their airway. If they still have no respiratory function, this patient moves into the black category. If respirations return, this patient moves into the red or immediate category. The next thing you look at is how fast the respiratory rate is. If the respiratory rate is above 30, that patient stays in the red group or immediate care arm. If the respiratory rate is below 30, we're going to move on to assess perfusion. When looking at perfusion, we're going to look at two things. One, is there a radial pulse or not? And what's the cap refill? If there's no radial pulse or the cap refill is greater than two seconds, this patient stays in the red or immediate resuscitation arm. If there is a radial pulse or their cap refill is less than two seconds, we can move on to assess mental status. So the last arm of this triage system is mental status. If the patient can't follow simple commands, they stay in the red or immediate triage arm. If the patient's able to follow commands, they go to the yellow or delayed care arm. Gentry shared a quick abbreviation that helps us sort of put all this together. That abbreviation is 32 can do. If they've got less than 30 respirations per minute, if their cap refill is less than two seconds and they can follow commands, they're going to be in the yellow or the green arm. 
Once you go through this system, you've sorted and prioritized your patients, and you can get to work. Gentry's second talk was on blast injuries. He started off by going over the five different mechanisms of blast injury. The first is primary. This is the direct effects of the blast wave. It can cause damage by a number of different mechanisms. The secondary blast injury is basically when there's debris that physically causes injury. This is things like shrapnel. These are actually more common than primary injuries because the shrapnel can be thrown at quite a distance. Next is tertiary injuries. This is what results when the pressure waves throw the individual into another object. Fourth is quaternary injuries. These are injuries associated with the blast, things like burns, toxic exposures, asphyxia, or psychological injury. And then lastly is the quinary. This is actually a hypothesized injury. It's thought to be some kind of a hyperinflammatory state that results from the blast, and it can lead to things like hyperpyrexia, diaphoresis, and even a low central venous pressure. Once we've addressed those different mechanisms of injury, we can move on to the blast injury patterns. And Gentry focused on five different organ systems that are involved. Number one is auditory. These are things like TM ruptures, ossicle disruption, and you can even have damaged hair cells and nerves. In the past, we used to say that if you've got no TM rupture, there was no significant injury, but this doesn't seem to really pan out in the literature. Number two is orbital injuries. About 10% of patients in a blast are gonna have some kind of an orbit injury. These can either be from primary or secondary effects. Often we'll see things like hyphema, globe injuries, or even lens dislocation. The next system involved is lung injury. Lung injury can be worse if the blast is in an enclosed space. We're mainly talking here about the blast lung syndrome. This syndrome is defined as seeing dyspnea, cough, and hypoxia together. You'll often see patients with rapid, shallow breathing. That's gonna be really common, and you can see a number of complications, including pneumothorax, hemothorax, air embolism, or even alveolar rupture. Typically, you're gonna see a butterfly pattern of pulmonary injury on a chest X-ray. Now, the tricky thing about blast lung injury is that the patients may not declare this injury until 12 to 24 hours after a blast. So if you have a patient who is involved in a relatively large blast, you may actually want to admit them and observe them for up to 24 hours to see what develops. The fourth major system involved is intestinal injuries. This usually happens because of pressure differentials between the gas in the intestines and then the blast wall that's coming at them. It can cause pretty significant injuries. And the key take-home message here is that CT isn't sensitive. You have to have a low threshold with these patients, again, to observe them or to involve your surgical colleagues because they may actually need an X-lap. Lastly, Gentry discussed traumatic brain injury. This is often missed initially, and we can see basic concussive-type symptoms. There are some online resources that can help us to make this diagnosis, and we're going to drop a link to that in the show notes as well. So we had some great core content today, starting with our ID workshops and then moving on to our grand rounds on disaster management. Thanks again for joining us this week on the Core EM Podcast. See you guys all next week.